Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is great to be here with you at uh, the Redeemer Church of Dubai. I've, I've got to tell you that uh, I, uh, I am super thrilled and even honored to be here with you today, mostly because for the last few years, I, I really have felt a very special connection with you and with other churches in the area here in the United Arab Emirates. Um, it's amazing how many people come through Louisville and wind up going through this very, it seems, broad pipeline from there into uh, places like Ras Al Khaimah and Abu Dhabi and even Dubai. So I don't even know. I'm not sure I could even name all the people that I know that many of you will know. Josh Manley, for instance, the, the fellow who planted the new ch- church up in Ras Al Khaimah, was one of uh, the elders at my church at Third Avenue Baptist. Uh, you guys know Philip and Catherine Van Steenberg and Trey and Josephino Rear. Uh, Trey and I have been friends since I think we were in nursery together, like the day after we were born. Uh, so we are, we are closer than any of you realize, even right now, because I'm actually wearing his shirt because the airline lost my luggage. So this just goes on and on and on. There's, there's, uh, Jeremy Rennie that I know down in, in Abu Dhabi and, oh my goodness, Mac and Leanne Stiles, who many of you will know, are now members at, uh, at Third Avenue. There's Mark and Hannah Donald and there's John and Atlanta Pentecost. If you guys are here, hello. Looking forward to seeing you. So many people. And so it's amazing to to have sort of heard about what the Lord is doing here in the United Arab Emirates for so many years and through so many different people going in and out of my church and to finally be here. It's almost like, you know, coming to a place where a piece of my heart was and is already and having that circle closed. So it's wonderful to be with you. Um, I got to tell you, I'm a little discombobulated this morning. Uh, You know, there's the jet lag thing, which is happening. There's the fact that I'm wearing my best friend's shirt and my been lost for going on 48 hours now. Um, I'm so discombobulated, in fact, that uh, as most of you will know, in the United States, churches meet on Sunday mornings rather than Friday mornings, but that just completely slipped my mind, and so I actually texted a staff member this morning to make sure everything was ready for our services today, and he said, Greg, you realize it's Friday, and I said, oh yeah, it's Friday, I forgot about that. So you'll have to bear with me. I I am excited, though, to, to go with you this morning into the Word of God. And take a look together at what is without a doubt the most famous verse in all the Bible. More people in the Christian world will say that this verse is their favorite verse or their life verse really than any other verse in the entire Bible. When the gospel first takes root among the people, this verse that we're going to look at today becomes instantly known. It's the very first verse in every language that Bible translators put into the new language when a new Bible is being translated. People print it on t-shirts, they paint it on posters, they hold it up in front of TV cameras, at least in the United States. You don't even really have to quote the verse for people to know what you're talking about, you just have to invoke it. Just hold up a sign that says, you know, the reference of this verse, and everybody sort of knows kind of what you're talking about. Football players in the United States, when they put the eye black underneath their eyes to shield their eyes from the sun a little bit, they'll actually print it in white out on their their blackout. It's, It's very strange. Some of you may... Have it even somewhere on your body today, whether it's a necklace or a shirt or something else. You know what I'm talking about. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the verse is famous all over the world, and it's justly famous. There's not another verse in the entire Bible that better wraps up and just puts a bow on the truths of Christianity than this one. But you know what? John 3.16 doesn't exist in a vacuum. 
It comes in the midst of a story. It comes in the midst of something that John is doing. And in fact, something that Jesus is doing in the story that John is telling. I think a lot of times we approach the Bible as sort of a a bowl of fortune cookies, as if you can just sort of dive your hand into it and pick out one verse and pull the piece of paper out and read it without any context, without any meaning, and think you can understand it. Well, John 3.16 is one of those that kind of works like that, right? You can print it on a tiny piece of paper and you can read it and you can understand it, but, but what I want you to see is that when you understand that this verse is a part of a story that John is telling about Jesus... When you start to see that, you realize that this verse is is not just a simple and beautiful statement of the gospel, but it's actually deeply profound about who we are and who God is and our relationship with him. If you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at these verses uh, from chapter 3, verse 16, down through 21 that was read just a few minutes ago. Uh, We're going to be spending most of our time on John 3, 16, because all the other verses, 17 through 21, flow out of that one, and they're sort of just double-clicking on a few ideas from verse 16 that need a little bit more explanation. So we're going to be spending most of our time in 3, 16. So turn there, John chapter 3, verse 16. If you look right above John 3, 16, you can see where it falls in the story. What's happened at the beginning of chapter 3 is that this man named Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders, has come to Jesus in order to question him. And if you read the story and you understand it, what's going on is that Nicodemus is not coming to Jesus merely because he's curious about Jesus' teaching. He's coming to Jesus as one of the leaders of the Jewish people, and he's wanting to test Jesus. He's putting Jesus on a little bit of a trial and saying, Jesus, you need to answer to me. And if you study that passage, you see that what Jesus does with that conversation is that he he turns the whole thing around and he ends up saying to Nicodemus, look, Nicodemus, you're really not in a position to, to judge me about spiritual things. What needs to happen, Nicodemus, is that you need to be radically transformed. And the way that happens is by the power of the Spirit through the crucified and resurrected Messiah. Now, he says it through imagery of the Old Testament, so it's not put quite as clearly, at least to you and I who are not as familiar with the Old Testament, as it would have been to Nicodemus, but Nicodemus would have understood it. He would have understood that what Jesus was saying to me is, that's how you can be saved. And then on the heels of that comes this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Once you read it, once you think about it, once you roll this verse over in your mind, it's not at all surprising that this little section of the Bible has become so famous because so many of the great themes that make up the story of the entire Bible come together right here. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said once that in this verse was contained the entire message of the Bible. He said, this is the gospel in miniature. And it's true. In fact, it's really hard to improve on what John says there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's just that simple and it's really that amazing. That's the meaning of the text. There are no mysteries in it. There are no problems in it. There are no difficulties in it. It just says that and it's incredible. So I hope this morning as we study this verse is that the brilliance of what it says in all its simplicity will not be something that you just kind of once again go, ho-hum, another sermon about the gospel. We hear those at Redeemer every single week. Another sermon about John 3.16. I've been hearing that since I've been a kid in Sunday school. But my hope is that this verse and the Holy Spirit using this verse will press on your heart to see the astonishment of this truth that the God of the universe loves you. And because he loves you, gave his own son to save you. 
I want us to see three things in this text today, especially in verse 16, because the rest, as I said, is really just expansion of that one verse. So here are the three points that I want to talk with you about this morning. Number one, God's love for you. That's going to be point number one. Number two is God's gift to you. And then number three, God's invitation to you. So those three points, God's love for you, God's gift to you, God's invitation to you. And I hope you'll be able to see those very clearly coming out of John three sixteen. So point number one, God's love for you. God's love for you. That's the first and most important thing to see here in this verse, John three sixteen. That very first phrase, for God so loved the world. Now, when you read that, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, or for some of you, it's probably the 10,000th time that you've read that, it can strike you as just a little elementary, a little bit boring, maybe even just, you know, a, a little bit just plain. But the only reason the idea that God so loved us strikes us as plain and elementary is because the idea is so familiar to most of us. And if you really get down to it and think about it, the fact that God would love us is not something that we should take for granted or assume at all. I mean, think about it for just a minute. When God created us as human beings and when we rebelled against him in our sin, God was under no obligation even to hold us in existence anymore, much less reveal himself to us, much less love us. In fact, if you read history, if you study philosophy throughout history, you'll know that when humans have contemplated the divine, when they've contemplated the great other, when they've contemplated the supreme being, love isn't the first thing that comes to their minds. And think about the Roman and Greek gods. Roman and Greek gods were, they were powerful and they were sometimes kind, but nobody ever accused them of being loving. The Canaanite gods, the Egyptian gods, the Babylonian gods, they weren't even kind. They were just cruel and wrathful and arbitrary. I mean, even the nation of Israel, you read through the Old Testament, and you you see that even Israel, who worshipped the one true God, had to be convinced over and over and over and over that their God, Yahweh, was a God of love, not a God of hatred and division like they themselves were. It doesn't come naturally, and yet John says right here in John 3, 16, that it's true. God loved the world. Let's look at it a little bit closer. First, I just want you to notice the word for right there at the beginning. For God so loved the world. It doesn't start in verse 16 with just God so loved the world. It starts with this word for, which is not an accident. What the word for means every time you run across it in the Bible, especially at the beginning of a sentence, is because. It means because. It's not just filler. It actually catapults you backwards into what was just being talked about. So something, 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 because... God so loved the world. Well, well, what's the something that God loving the world explains or makes possible, right? What is it that's on the other side of the because? Well, it's that that story about Nicodemus coming to Jesus. It's everything that Jesus told Nicodemus about salvation. The new birth, the the power of the Spirit who creates that new birth in us. the, The Messiah who's lifted up on a cross in order to make it possible. Like the serpent in the wilderness, as Jesus says it. All of that. Salvation, new birth, the Spirit, the the Messiah, crucified and resurrected, all that, he says, finds its source and its fountain and its origin in the love of God. That's where it comes from. That's why it happens. I mean, really, if you look back up into the story, one one of the fascinating things that Nicodemus asks Jesus after Jesus has explained all of this, he says, how can these things be? 
And John 3.16 is really an answer to that question. Jesus is looking Nicodemus in the eye and saying, these things can be, Nicodemus. You can have the new birth. You can have the spirit. There is a Messiah who's going to be lifted up on a cross and die and be resurrected from the dead. These things can be, Nicodemus, because of the love of God. They can be because finally, at his heart, God is not finally wrath. God is not finally vindictiveness. God is not finally anger and fury and fire or even cold, stony indifference. Now, Nicodemus, these things can be because God is love. And that's the only reason that you have any hope at all. I mean, even more amazing, though, to see in this verse is that God's love is not just the source and the fountain of salvation, but it is that God's love is poured out Not on people who have loved him first, but rather on the world. You see that? For God so loved all the people who first loved him. No. For God so loved all the people who were very careful to obey him in every particular. No. For God so loved the world. What does that mean? Well, if you're like me, your first inclination when you hear that that word, the world, and when you see it in the Bible, is, is to think of bigness, Right? Somebody says the world, we want to we think about all the billions of people in the world, and so what we think when we come to a verse like John 3, 16, is, is what John is saying here is, for God so loved all the billions of people in, in, in the world. Well, well, that's true, right? And you can see that from other places in the Bible. But John's actually saying something a little bit different here. Because for John, that word world is not talking so much about the world's bigness as about its badness. When John uses the word world, he's talking about the world's evil and wickedness. He's referring to humanity in all of its rebellion and all of its sin against God. You see what he's saying there? It would be one thing, and it would be incredible for God to set his love on a humanity that from the very beginning was marked by love and joy and peace and right worship and selflessness and happy obedience to God. But that's not what God does when he pours out his love. What God does is love a world that's empty and barren of all those things. No love, no joy, no peace, no patience, no kindness, no goodness, no faithfulness, but rather hatred and malice and rage and evil and selflessness. A world that raised its fist in rebellion to God and said, you, God, are not worthy to be worshipped. I would rather worship myself. You see what he's saying? When, When he says that God so loved the world... It's not just a basic creator's concern for his creation. It's not just general parental responsibility that a father would give to a child just because the child is his own. It's not just a sort of fundamental basic care for the well-being of of humans. No, 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 no. No, a fundamental sort of care, a, a fundamental basic parental responsibility to the thing that God created is not enough to overcome that kind of rebellion and evil. The only thing that's able to overcome that kind of rebellion, that kind of evil, that kind of fist in the face is the white hot, passionately, ultimately unexplainable and even unreasonable love of God. The kind that causes the Son of God to step up from his throne And look down on the fallen world and say, I am going to get them because I love them. It's the kind of love that when the Son of God dives through the stars and the galaxies and the clouds and into the womb of a virgin and then into the arms of his mother as the incarnate Son of God, 
leaves the angels on the edge of heaven breathless and stunned. And maybe even just a little bit worried that the Son of God has lost his mind. That's what John's describing here. Friends, I hope you can see what he's saying and I hope you can appreciate what he means. What what he's saying when he says, for God so loved the world, is that whoever you are, you do not deserve God's love. And yet you have it anyway. You realize that? You do not deserve God's love and yet you have it anyway. In in, in a thousand, thousand, million, million ways, you have forfeited any right by your sin and rebellion against God, by your apathy toward him, by your not caring about him. You've forfeited any right you ever had to God's love and yet you have it anyway. I know there's some Christians who would balk at saying that. They say, look, God doesn't, God doesn't love those who aren't Christians. But, God, but, but John says he does. John says he loves the world in all its sin and rebellion, and it's from that fountain of love for an unworthy world, for a non-Christian world, that the whole idea of salvation erupts in the first place. Look, if you're a Christian, it is deeply useful. For you as a Christian, I don't care if you're a brand new Christian or if you've been a Christian for 50, 60, 70 years, it's deeply useful for you as a Christian to remember that you are the world. You were not saved by God because you were something different from the world or better than the world or because you made a different choice than the world made or lived your life in a different way than God, than the world did it. You yourself are part of this fallen, rebellious, wrecked, ruined, and dying human race. And yet God loved you and saved you, made you alive and raised you up and united you to Christ and seated you with him. Now friends, never, ever, not for a moment should you think that salvation came to you because you were somehow different from the world. God loved the world against all reason and that's the only reason you were saved. Look, I I, I don't know why you're here this morning. Some of you come to, to this church and Gather with these people every Friday. I know that. Some of you may be here for the very first time, but but no matter who you are, no matter why you're here, no matter what's going on in your life, I want you to hear one thing from me this morning in particular. God loves you. And the fact that you're breathing, the fact that you got up this morning and your heart was still beating and your organs were still working and you were still alive. The fact, that, the fact that you have food and shelter, the fact that you live on a, on a planet with more goodness and beauty in it than you have ever deserved in your life, all of that should tell you that God loves you. Even the fact that you're sitting here in this room this morning, you think that was an accident? It's not an accident. God brought you here. Are you here to listen to somebody talk about this verse in particular? Of all verses in the Bible, this one. That should tell you that God loves you. By the way, if you're a parent, if you have young children, I I hope you're telling your kids this on a regular, regular basis. Tell your kids this, that God loves them. Look them in the eye at night when you put them into bed and say, kiddo, God loves you. You need to do that. And you need to do that even before they are Christians. Before they are Christians, you need to tell them that God loves them. 
I've heard of parents before who, Christian parents who won't do that because they say, they say something like, well, un, un, until my children come to Christ, my children are of the world and they're alienated from God. Well, well, the way I want to answer that is, yes, that's true. Of course, until they come to Christ, they're of the world. And God loves the world. Tell them that. Tell them that God loves them. And let his love draw them to Jesus. I mean, you realize that's the point, right? You realize that the, the great point is that God's love for you even in your worldliness, even in your sin, even in your rebellion. It's not this sort of amorphous, undefined feeling that's just a matter of sentimentality. No, it's a love that actually results in concrete, specific, and defined action. That's what I want to talk with you about next. Number two, God's gift to you. God's gift to you. It's not just an amorphous sort of emotional explosion that results in nothing. No, God's love that he's shown to you results in an action by God. And do you see what that action is that it results in? God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. God so loved the world and that love led him to give. You've got to see that. God did not just love you. He does not just love me and us in the privacy of his eternal throne room. It's not just a strong feeling that he's, that he's got while he's looking at his Instagram photos on his, his eternal iPhone, right? It's not just a warm feeling. It's a love that leads him to some sort of action. See that word so there? For God so loved the world. That's, that's what the word so means. It, 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 it sounds to us when we read it, most of us, if you're, if you're an English speaker, it sounds to you like, like this. You want to read this verse like this. For God... So, whoa, 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 love the world, right? That's how you want to read it. You want to read it as meaning something like so much or so deeply or so, whoa, 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 that's what it means. But that's not it, not really. And what it means is that God loved the world so. God loved the world thus. God loved the world in this particular way. God so loved the world. Like this, he gave his only son. It's a love that resulted in a specific action. And what a stunning action it was. I mean, think about that sentence. For, for God so loved the world that he did something, right? You can think of a million things that, that, that could have filled in that sentence. And every single one of them would have been an act of grace from God, right? For God so loved the world that he didn't destroy us immediately when we rebelled against him. Amazing act of love. For God so loved the world that he did destroy us immediately instead of giving us what we truly deserve. Hell, that would have been an amazing act of God to just wipe us out, annihilate us. But that's not what it says. And what about this one? God, God so loved the world that after we sinned, he gave his law so that at least we might have another fighting chance at it. That would have been an amazing act of grace. But, but it's not what he says. It's God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son infinitely precious to him. I don't know how many times through the course of my life I read that, that uh, verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I'm 39 years old. I don't know how many times I've read it. But I've been a dad for a little over 14 years now. And I can tell you that that verse and that concept of God giving his son took on a brand new meaning when I had sons. I've got two of them. One's 14 and one's 10. Justin and Jack. And I have a little Juliet too. Little girl. 
And that verse of what it says just takes on a whole new meaning when you have sons, kids of your own. I mean, I mean my whole life, every fiber of my being right now is, is geared toward those kids' protection and, and good. And, and the thought of giving their lives so that somebody else might live, it, it's just... It, it, it's not that when I imagine it, it's painful. It's, it's almost like a black hole, right? I can't even like get past the event horizon of the black. I just, my mind just bounces off of it because it doesn't make any sense to me. And then to think of giving the life of my son for an enemy of mine, it's just unfathomable. And, and yet that's what God has done. But even more, you remember what John said in the very first verse of this book, just three chapters earlier, if you've ever studied it. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, the the infinite creator of the entire universe gives himself out of love for you in your rebellion. The source of all the life in the universe submits himself to death for me so that so that I can live. It's no wonder the angels just look at that and are just astonished. Why? Do you want to save them? The answer comes back, it's because I love them. Why? Do you love them? I love them because I love them. And look at the result. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The result of the Son of God coming was salvation. It didn't have to be. And if you think that the only thing the Son of God could have done when he got here is save, you haven't thought about it hard enough. I mean, even John in verse 17 sort of has to, to clarify it, right? God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, which is exactly what you might have expected when the creator of the universe against whom we have all rebelled steps into the world. You would expect condemnation and judgment. It wasn't that, John says in 17. It was so that the world might be saved through him, and that ought to blow your mind because it's unexpected. It's mind-blowing. God looks down from his throne at a cursed and dead world with its fist raised against him and he rises not to condemn but to save. He delivers his one and only son, his own infinite glorious self into the grasp of death so that we rebels might have what was always his by right and by nature. Life. And why does he do it? Because he loved the world. Brothers and sisters, three weeks from now, you as a church are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper again together, if I've got the calendar right. The next time you do, don't take that for granted. You are a rebel against God. You are a sinner against God. And yet... That little bit of bread that symbolizes the incarnate body of the second person of the infinite Godhead is going to break between your teeth. 
that little bit of juice that symbolizes the shed blood of the second person of the eternal Godhead is going to disappear over your lips. Because God so loved the world. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. He perished so that you, you wouldn't have to. God so loved the world. But it's not automatic. It's not automatic. Yes, God loved the world. And yes, he sent his one and only son so that we might not perish but have what is always his by right and nature, eternal life. But, but friends, that's not just a headline. It's not just a declaration. It's not just a proclamation. It is an invitation. And it demands action from you today. That's point number three. God's invitation to you. God's invitation to you. You see the invitation there? See the invitation? Let me read it carefully. It's not for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we might not perish but have eternal life. That's not what it says. There are four crucial little words there in the middle. Whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him. There's the invitation. That's the invitation that God extends to you no matter who you are. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing this morning, that's the invitation that God gives you today, this morning. And here's what I want you to see. Again, we've already talked about it, but here's what I want you to see. Again, I want you to see and know that that invitation from God is extended to you no matter who you are or what you've done. I mean, look at that word there, whoever believes in him. That, the word whoever, whoever is just fantastically huge. The good news of Jesus, that he came into the world because of his love for sinners and lived in their place and died in their place and rose again in their place, is offered to the entire world, including you. Look, it's, it's not just for people who have it all put together. I know that when you come into a church sometimes, you can look around and people seem well-dressed and they seem put together and people are standing up here singing the songs and there's another guy that stands up here doing the announcements and, and praying and it's usually in a, in a big voice and then the preacher gets up and he's talking in this big, confident, big voice and it can just look like most everybody around you has just got it all together. But what I want you to understand is that this invitation of the gospel is not just for people who have it all together. It's also not just for people who have sort of accidentally sinned in some little bitty small ways. But friends, you need to know this morning that the gospel is not just for small sinners. It's for people who have made a wreck of their lives. It's for people who have made a wreck of other people's lives. It's for people who are alcoholics. It's for people who have had abortions. It's for people who have cursed God and hated other people. It's for people who have been ruined by lust and anger and greed and selfishness. If you and I could get in a corner together and you could tell me every secret sin in your life, you could unfold down into the depths of your heart, even the stuff that you don't even know about. You could lay it out on the table one by one by one. And you know what I'm going to say to every single one of them? You know what God is going to say, what Jesus is going to say to every single one of them? You can say, you can say, I have wrecked my life. And I'm going to say to you, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You can say, I've wrecked my children's lives. I'm going to say, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You can say, I'm an alcoholic and I have been for years. And I'll say, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
You can tell me I've had an abortion and I'll say, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You can say, I am just sunk in lust and pornography and greed and selfishness. My marriage is a wreck. And I'm going to say, whoever, 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 whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done for God. So loved the world. They gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him is not going to perish but have eternal life. This invitation is for you. God will forgive it all if you believe in him. Okay, okay, but what does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, let's just talk shop for a second. What, what am I talking about? Maybe you're here for the, for the very first time. This is, this is first, second, third time maybe that you're hearing anything at all about Christianity or this thing that we Christians talk about all the time, which is the gospel, the good news. And maybe you're hearing for the first time or the third time and you're still confused about it. Like they talk about believing in Jesus. What does that mean? What does believing mean? Well, one of our problems, honestly, is just that the world around us has so messed up the word believe that it's almost useless at this point. I mean, to the, to the world around us, the word belief, which is really the same word as faith, just means something like to believe in the ridiculous, even though you don't have any evidence for the ridiculous, Right? So some people believe in, you know, the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. And, you know, you don't have any evidence for that. And yet, you know, I believe it anyway. I have faith that there is a Santa Claus, right? You've seen the movies. This is what they say. I mean, one of the things that my family does every year is we watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And they've got the believo-meter that spins around, right? And every time somebody comes by and sings this dance or, you know, dressed like an elf or whatever, the believo-meter goes up because people are believing more in these ridiculous things, like guys running around in green tights. And then when Santa Claus himself shows up in his sleigh, the believometer just goes wild, you know, spinning around. There's fireworks and confetti. That's what the world thinks about belief. That's what the world thinks you as a Christian mean when you say, I believe in Jesus. But of course, biblically speaking, that's not what it is. It's not what it is. So what does it mean? Well, let me try to explain it to you. At one level, to to believe in Jesus literally just means that you give intellectual assent to a couple of things. It means that you just say, yep, I believe that that's true. I affirm that that's true. Well, what what do you need to give intellectual assent to? Well, number one, you need to give intellectual assent to the fact that you are a sinner and because of your sin against God, you deserve to die, to perish, as John puts it. You need to believe that. You need to say, yep, that's true. I am a sinner and I deserve to die because of my sin. Second thing you need to give intellectual assent to, that you just believe it, this is, this is true, is that Jesus, through his death in your place, through his life in your place, through his resurrection in your place, is able to save. And that he's the only person that's able to save. That you're not going to find salvation in this thing over here or that religion over there or you know, that philosophy over here, but Jesus is, is who saves and he does it through his life, death, and resurrection in your place as your substitute. You, you just have to give intellectual assent to those things. That's one level of it. But belief is more than just intellectual assent to. You know what it is in a word? It's trust. It's not just to say, Jesus, I think you can do this. I think that's true, but it's actually to trust him to do it. 
It's actually to, to look at Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, I believe that you really are who you say you are. I believe, Jesus, that, that I am who you say I am. I believe that you can do what you say you can do. And now I'm going to trust you to do it. I'm going to lean on you to do it. I'm not, I, I, when I stand before God, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sort of, you know, keep, keep Jesus over here in one pocket, but have all my good works in another pocket or all my church attendance over here. And, and just in case Jesus doesn't work out, I can pull all of these things out and try to convince God at the last second to save me. No, what you're doing is looking at Jesus and saying, I got no other hope. You know the old song, just as I am without one plea. You ever thought about what that means? It means when you stand before God, you're going to plead nothing else without one other plea except the fact that his blood was shed for me. Jesus, I believe in you 100% and I have no other faith. If you don't save me, I'm done. It's hopeless. See, that, that, that's the dividing line. That's the divine line. You read, you read verses 18 through 21, which we did a few minutes ago, and you, and you see that, that that's the dividing line. God has given an invitation to the world. The, the light, as John puts it in another place, has shined on the world in Christ. On every single one of us, the light of Christ has shined. And on you this morning as you're sitting here, the light of Christ is shining extremely brightly because you're sitting here listening to my voice. And the question that comes to every single person on whom that light shines is what do you do with it? Do you come to the light or do you stay in the darkness? Do you you remain in the condemnation that you deserve for your sin or do you come to Christ and be saved? Look, I, I, I can stand up here all day long or at least for another nine minutes and I can beg you and I can cajole you, and I can try to reason with you, and I can, I can say all kinds of things to you to try to get you to say, yes, I'm trusting in Christ now. But ultimately, friend, this is just something that you need to do. And you need to do it now, today, before you leave this place. I mean, what else do you need in order to say, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And I'm trusting him to say me. I mean, I mean, do you need to think about it some more? I mean, I mean, no, friend, that's, that's not going to do. You'll, you'll think your way all the way to hell. You need to pray about it some more? No. You know what God requires of you. You need to sing another song. You need to have some, some feeling burst in your heart. Is that, is that what you're waiting for? You're waiting on a feeling? No, no. Your feelings about this are not the issue. The issue is what God demands from you today, and that is turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus to save you from it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a declaration. Though it is that, it is an invitation, and it demands something of you right now, today. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. In the 1960s, 50, 60 years ago, something like that, there was a a particular man who had become respected really throughout the, the whole Christian world as one of the most thoughtful and one of the greatest theologians of the entire 20th century. And the man wasn't accurate in everything by any means, and that's why I'm not going to tell you his name, but 
Even in the things that he was wrong on, nobody ever accused him of speaking small thoughts or thinking small things. There was a particular time in the 1960s, mid-1960s, when he came to the city of Chicago in the USA, and he had been invited to, to give some lectures. And there was a Q&A, a sort of panel discussion at the end of this, like we do at, at conferences, right? If you come to the Gospel at Work conference next week, you'll see us do these kinds of panel discussions, Q&A. And somebody in the audience got a hold of a microphone or whatever they did in the 1960s and asked the, the fellow, Dr. So-and-so, you're known as one of the most respected theologians in, in, in all the 20th century and all the world. And your mind is full of great thoughts about God, about theology, about the world, about humanity and anthropology and all the rest of it. But Dr. So-and-so, what is the greatest thought that has ever passed through your mind? Well, the theologian put his elbows on his knees. I can't do it here, but he did. And he put his fingers to his lips and bowed his head and he He paused for a long time. He thought about it. And finally, he lifted up his head and with tears in his eyes, he said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's incredibly simple, isn't it? And yet it's the greatest truth that has ever rung through God's cosmos. God loved the world just so, in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him, whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning for your matchless love. Our God, in spite of our sin and in spite of our rebellion, yet you have set your affection and your compassion on the world. And we thank you for that. Because of your mercy and because of your grace, you have acted in your son Jesus to save rebels and sinners who lifted up their fists against you. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you that you save sinners like all of us from sin. And Father, we pray that you would help us as Christians to revel in the glory of that and in the joy of it. And if there are those here today who are not Christians, then we pray that you would give them the gift of faith so that they might believe and not perish, but have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.